like some thoughts that I've, uh, convictions that I've had for a very long time. Never been able to, to like put them all together in a single message, so that's what I tried to do here. It got a little unwieldy at one point, uh, so I had to kind of rein it in and focus it more. Hopefully it's focused enough to be edifying here uh, this morning. And, uh, you know... Um, Oh, I can't remember what else I was going to say, but uh, basically uh, these are some thoughts that I've had for a very long time. Some real guiding principles as far as my own convictions about the word. Um, I think, in, in fact, when you think about the word of God and you think about what we're going to talk about here today, I mean, it's one of those foundational realities. Um, I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, you can be off on quite a few things, but if you're off on this guiding principle, you're going to be completely off. You know, you're going to end up way off embracing all kinds of things that take you away from what the Lord intends. And so what I entitled this message today, Kelly's always sneaking up on me with uh, the request for a title, and then I'm always very slow to get her one. I did settle on a title, Avoiding Bad Math. I think as we get into the introduction here, it'll become more clear what is exactly being articulated by that title. But let me just bounce a, a few scenarios off of you first. Let me talk about occasions where the math works out. Uh, you sit down at a restaurant and a waiter brings you an appetizer and just drops it off and you and your spouse look at each other and say, we didn't order that. And then, of course, you bring this to the waiter's attention and, and the waiter says, oh, well, I already left it at your table. It's just on the house. Go ahead and take that. Uh, got a little something extra out of the deal, something you didn't plan on. So, you know, that's when the math works out, right? Adding a little something is, is pretty good. Uh, on the flip side of that, if something is forgotten, you know, the waiter forgets to bring you something, you get to the end, you get the bill, and you say, hey, we didn't get the cheesy potatoes, I'm sorry, you know, uh, oh, I'll take that off. You know, again, the math works out. You didn't get all that you ordered, but they made it right, and the math worked out. Uh, you could look at it another way, too. You're at work, and the boss says, I need you to work late, but, you know, tomorrow the big project will be passed, and... You know, you can go home early, just a few hours early. So the math works out. Uh, there's many things in life like that where we can kind of just add a little here, subtract a little there, and it's close enough. Horseshoes and hand grenades, right? I mean, it works out, and it's acceptable, and we can live with that kind of outcome. But let me try a few other scenarios for you. This is when the math doesn't work out. You have a really big day and it's very important that you get up at 6 a.m. and you set the alarm at 6 a.m. You turn the volume as high as it will possibly go because 6 a.m. is when you need to get up. And uh, then someone comes along after you and switches it to 7 a.m. Whew, yeah, that becomes a big deal. That's a little addition that ended up impacting your day in a big way. Perhaps it was the other way. They knew what such a big day it was for you. Thought, you know they should really get up earlier. And they wake you up at 5, and then it's kind of a bad day too because you missed out on that hour of sleep, and uh, just everything was off. The, you know, that's when the math does not work out. No, what do you need? I need 6 a.m. Okay, I need 6 a.m. Perhaps you're helping a friend uh, move a piano. At least that's what they told you. And you show up, and... Find out the piano, this is a real life experience too, it's at the front of a box truck and, and all the way back to the bumper is filled. <laughs> so it's like, okay, well we have a little bit of work ahead of us before we get to that piano. That was a little bit of addition that you weren't counting on, right? Wasn't exactly what you were sold, what you were told either. Perhaps uh, you've had this instance in your life. Um, you have two sons, two daughters. They share a room. You tell one of them, perhaps the oldest, you and your brother need to go clean your room. And the child departs faintly in the distance. You hear, Dad says you need to clean the room. <laughs> yeah. So that kind of, uh, that illustration, that last one especially, I think fits best with what we're going to talk about here today. In our key verse, and you can turn there, sorry, our key verse is Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And verses 1 and 2. 
Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. So this, the analogies, out of all the analogies that I've given, perhaps that of a father instructing a child is uh, the most appropriate. Um, we don't like it when we put words or someone put words, uh, puts words in our mouth, nor do we like it when people take words out of what we've said. It ultimately is a distortion of what we've said, and that becomes uh, very significant in instances like a father instructing a child. Uh, that child could doubt your wisdom, doubt your ability to articulate, could speculate on their own, change what the instructions were. And then when they come back and say, hey, I did it, they didn't really do it. They did something that they took and changed and morphed perhaps into something that they would have rather have done, like watch their brother clean their room. Right. But note the language here in verse 2. You shall not add, nor take away. Both are twin sins. Both, ultimately, as we will look at several examples in Scripture, if you ever start taking away from God's Word, it's not very long before you find yourself adding to it. If you start adding to God's Word, amazingly enough, it's not too long before too long you're taking away from it. They are sister heirs, they're twin heirs, and if you're doing one, invariably, ultimately, you will be doing the other as well. And so it becomes very important to, uh, to abide on both fronts, to hold the ground of really viewing this as a tightrope. That's what's being presented to us. Uh, you know, those who like to add... To God's word, like the analogy of a cliff, they love to see that, you know, there's sin, it's a cliff, you want to stay as far back as possible. There is a time and a place for that illustration, I think that's taught in scripture, make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts and so forth. But there because, you know, in the end, we have to be very careful that we are looking at this and saying, well, yes, okay, there are certain things that when you put it into practice personally, there wouldn't be it wouldn't be good for you to do that. It wouldn't be good for you to get closer, if you will. But at the same time, it's a very different thing when you start to say, well, no, this is God's word to everyone. You know, this is what he really meant. Yeah, I know that's what he says, but this is what he meant here. Let me build upon that or worse or even <laughs> not worse still just the same taking away from it. Either one will take you away from what it says right here. He says, you shall not add nor take away from it that you may keep. See, either distortion will ultimately lead away from keeping what it says. And so we need to stop where the scriptures stop and not go too far nor too short of what it is saying, what it is emphasizing. And it's something that is emphasized throughout Scripture down to uh, the New Testament, as we will see. This is uh, something that from the beginning, the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible <laughs> is emphasized. Uh, this is not just picking it up for a small emphasis under the law. This is something that is transcendent throughout uh, human history because it all pertains to the word of God. It pertains to what he says to us, okay, at every juncture of human history. There is the real danger of adding to and taking away from God's word. Well, let's start at the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. And let me show you this uh, from way back from the very beginning. God gives a very clear commandment. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Genesis 2, 16 through 17 says, 
The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So there's the command. Here's a garden. Eat from any tree. You are free to eat from any tree except one. And that tree is pointed out very clearly as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, jump down to chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? You see the subtle distortion there that he has made? Has he said that you shall not eat from any tree? That's not what he said at all. He said you shall eat from any tree except one. See, he's painting the commandment as actually more restrictive than it really was. He's adding to God's word. So in the wake of that restricting it even more, the woman, for the most part, is responding appropriately. She's... uh, Countering with what actually was said. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. So she got the first part right. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, (laughs) you shall not eat from it or touch it. Now she's very specific, and I think it's very specific for a reason. There's a very subtle distortion happening in her thinking as well. This isn't coming from the serpent. This is coming from her own thoughts, her own thinking. Okay, perhaps nudged along by Satan in this matter. Okay, maybe his liberty with what God had said had maybe sparked a little liberty within herself. She takes a little bit of liberty with God's word and she maybe thinks that she's helping him out. Right. Because maybe God didn't really say enough concerning this matter. Maybe there was a little bit more that needed to be said. Certainly this is what she's going to tell her kids. (laughs) Right? She says that they were not even to touch it or you will die. That is an addition. And note this, as innocent as innocent as it may seem, as wise as it may seem, we should all walk away with one very important lesson. That addition did not save her. That addition really didn't help her out in the end. So what would have? Keeping the word would have. Okay? Not the addition. Not the addition. Well, then Satan goes on. He says, the serpent says to the woman, you surely will not die. Whenever you start to add, invariably, there's going to be a subtraction. And this was his ultimate aim. And it didn't really matter if he got the addition or the subtraction. Either way, the goal was disobedience. It was missing that tightrope. It didn't matter if you fell to the right or fell to the left. It was not keeping the word. And again, as soon as you find yourself doing one, you will quickly find yourself doing the other, be it adding or subtracting. Well, now in our passage in Deuteronomy 4, this is where we find ourselves. God is giving the law to Israel. Okay, this is in the wake of Adam and Eve's sin. This is in the wake, uh, you know, this is fallen humanity now. God is revealing himself through the nation of Israel. They are to be a holy people, set apart people, reflecting his character and his holiness upon this earth. And so now he is giving them a law, a law that will set them apart and make them different from every nation that's upon the earth. And that separation... Okay, was to be governed by that law. They were not to add to it. They weren't to take away from it. They were to keep the commandment. And by keeping the commandment, they would fulfill the purpose of being separated. They would be a separated people. So let's go ahead and look now. Turn to Leviticus chapter 10.
tried to keep these as chronological as possible so that we don't find ourselves going back and forth. But Leviticus chapter 10, this is what the Lord says. The Lord then spoke to Aaron. So it's a very narrow audience here, very narrow instruction for the line of Aaron. Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons. There's a very specific occasion, actually more than one, but it starts with the sanctuary. When you come into the tent of meeting. This is in the wake of Nadab and Abihu being burned because they offered strange fire. It would seem that alcohol was involved in some way. Well, he says he warns them not to drink wine when they go in to perform their duties in the sanctuary. He says, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. Verse 10. And so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane and between the unclean and the clean. You don't want impaired judgment when you're standing and ministering before a holy God. There was a very thin margin of error inside that tent. They had to do everything exactly the way God wanted it done. Well, verse 11, and there's more occasions here. And so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. That same exactness. Okay, that had been reinforced by the death of Nadab and Abihu, that very uh, heavy, you know, context of going into the presence of the Lord. Okay, that gravity was supposed to characterize how they taught the word. Okay, he is concerned. Okay, you go in here, you are to perform this exactly the way I prescribed it in my holy presence. But guess what? You go out and when you're explaining my statutes to the children of Israel, you better have a real clear mind so that you are not adding to or taking away. That you are giving them exactly what I have instructed them. So as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Well, as we well know, anyone who is even you know, loosely acquainted with the history of Israel, uh, Israel didn't do too well. And so God ended up sending to them the prophets to get them back on track. Go ahead and turn with me to Second Kings. Uh, if you are moving forward, the historical books are right after the law. The first five books, you jump into the historical books. Second uh, Kings is where we're going to be. And Second Kings is, oh, I don't know, page 402 in my Bible. Um, but here we are on page, uh, or I'm sorry, chapter, Second Kings, chapter 17. And we have the indictment against Israel. Uh, there is an indictment if you read the books of First and Second Kings and, and you get to this point, you find out why the author is writing. There's a very different tone than there is with First and Second Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles is written after the captivity, after they learned their lesson. It's much more positive in its depiction of their history. It wants to show a way forward. It wants to prove that there was a rich history of worshiping the Lord and they were to rebuild and restore that worship under the new second temple. Uh, but when we come to the book of first and second kings this is about telling them why they went into captivity this is about telling them why it was they underwent that severe judgment from the lord and what does it come back to well second kings chapter 17 verse 12 they served idols concerning which the lord had said to them you shall not do this thing Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, and which I sent to you through my servants the prophets. Note that as well. I mean, he is the Lord. He gave them the law, but then he sent the prophets. Note what he said there. He says, uh, and at the verse, uh, and to close of verse 13, and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. The law wasn't the only word of God that came to them. He was speaking to them through the prophets. We have many of them in the Old Testament here as well. Of course, Jeremiah's one. We'll be looking at him shortly. And so there was a further word to them. 
That was his prerogative. If God wanted to add to his word, he could. But it wasn't their prerogative to do so. They could not add. They could not subtract. Only God could. It was his word that he was speaking to them. Well, verse 14. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. There you go. Davy, that's believing in the Lord your God right there. So that point does get made here. What does faith look like? It takes God at his word. It doesn't go to the right. It doesn't go to the left. It doesn't step off of either side of the of the high wire. No, it keeps the commandment. It takes him at his word. Verse 15, they rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. So we see a subtraction. They weren't doing what the law of God had said. And then at the same time, we need to find a replacement. Well, we have to do something. Well, what are those Ammonites over there doing? How do they worship their God? What are their statutes? Let's get some of that and bring it over here. What about those Philistines? You know, what about the Phoenicians, right? The Tyrians? What, what can we adopt to fill this void because we're really not about keeping what God has clearly told us. We're going to find a replacement for it. And just so you know, uh, here they are. He's talking about the nations and the influence that the nations has had on them. But then, you know, what about those cousins? What about Israel to the north? Because there was Israel in the north, Judah in the south. They had split after Solomon under Rehoboam. Okay, Jeroboam took the king, uh, kingdom of the north, and he took them on their own way. Look what he says there, chapter 17, verse 18. So the Lord was very angry with Israel. He's talking about that northern kingdom. And removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. This was the southern kingdom that was ruled by the house of David. Also, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in all the customs which Israel had introduced. Say, man, you know, these you see the impact here. Here were here was Israel. Israel just kind of embraces everything around them. Let's all the uh, idol worship that had been going on in the nations surrounding them. And even the peoples who remain still within the land, the Canaanites influence them. And then, of course, Judah say, well, you know, they're our cousins. They got some good ideas up there, right? They have something to offer us. Only bad. Only bad. They repeated Israel's mistake. Well, let's go ahead and move a little further now to make matters worse. So Jeremiah chapter 23 is where we want to be. Moving along now into the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 23. I always get up here and need a Kleenex. There wouldn't happen to be one up here, is there? That's all right. I'll survive. But moving to Jeremiah chapter 23, uh, we see here that it wasn't just the, the prophets of the Lord that were operating in Israel. There was also the false prophets who were coming, not speaking in the name of Baal. That's not very deceptive at all. Well, thank you. You always keep these on hand. That's your secret, right? <laughs> Thank you. So here we are. We're not just receiving. Okay, that's what I was saying is uh, uh, here they are receiving the word of the Lord. Right. Someone is coming and speaking in the name of the Lord. And of course, that person is pointing them back to the law. Hey, you need to keep, you know, judgment is coming. If you don't keep the law, then judgment's going to get here and it's not going to be good. And then you had the false prophet. They spoke in the name of the Lord, too. Uh, and that very reality is what Jeremiah is addressing here. It was very difficult to be a prophet. Not only did you have the hardness of the people who really you know, didn't want to hear the word of the Lord, didn't want to hear where they were adding or subtracting to the word. But then you have this competing force of, of the false prophet coming along and telling them, you're just fine. 
Judgment isn't coming. No, no, no. You're doing exactly what God wants you to do. Jeremiah 23, it says, verse 30, 25, sorry, verse 25, 23, 25. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to, their, to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal? The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters the rock? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare the Lord declares. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and, relate, uh, and related them and led my people astray by the, their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. Boy, that's something to think about when you think about adding to God's word or taking away from it. What are you really doing? You're not benefiting anybody. This is like Eve thinking that her little benefit to God's word is going to save somebody. And at the end of the day, she ended up falling into the very trap that she thought she was avoiding. So here we are. Um, I love this, too. Who steal my words from each other. <laughs> What is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about one of the false prophets starts saying something and he gets a little bit of a following. And then one of the other false prophets is sitting there saying, you know what? I think he's got a really catchy message. I think people like to hear that message. I'm going to start saying it, too. It's spoken in, in irony here. Who steal my words from each other. This is supposedly a word from the Lord, but he just got it from the prophet over here. <laughs> in reality, it wasn't the word of the Lord at all. It was a distortion. So this went on. Israel went into captivity. Judah went into captivity. Judy, Judah comes back after 70 years and starts to repopulate the land. And then we have a bright spot. Okay, we have a bright spot. Now remember, this is a time of rebuilding. Uh, this is a time where these people had been run through the ringer. They, their fathers, you know, their ancestors had just taken them further and further and further away from the Lord. They get out among the nations. They don't know which way's up. They come back to the land and the Lord provides someone. His name was Ezra. Ezra the priest. He's called Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of Moses. Look at with me. Okay, we are going to have to go backwards. Back to Ezra, one of the last historical books prior to Psalms. Ezra chapter 7. We want to look at Ezra chapter 7 and, and look at what Ezra committed himself to doing. Um, Ezra, this is going to be after First and Second Chronicles. Ezra, Nehemiah, Job, and then you're off into the Psalms. But Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a skill, uh, scribe skilled in the law of Moses. This is what they needed all along. This is what the priests were supposed to be doing all along. They were to be skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the, the king granted him all, the, uh, all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Jump down to verse 8. He came to Jerusalem in the 15th month, which is the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the month, he began going up from Babylon. On the first, uh, first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord 
and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Isn't that something? That is exactly what they always needed. See, how it got off at the very root was this was not how the priesthood was functioning. They did not consider this their responsibility as the law had called them to do, to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So this Ezra has a huge impact on them as they come back from the... uh, um, from the captivity, they're dwelling in the land, they're rebuilding. And for roughly 500 years, they're laying the foundation for the coming of Jesus Christ. When we look in the New Testament, we see a land that is flourishing, that God is preparing for the coming of the Messiah. And really, spiritually speaking, it all started right here, right here. Now, what's interesting about this is, is as we think about this, look at what he says there. He says to study the law of the Lord. We kind of had this discussion a little bit uh, last week in Sunday school, talking about the doctrine of inspiration. It's good to note there that as a teacher, okay, he was not an inspired speaker. He was not a prophet. Okay, the priests were not prophets. The priests didn't speak under inspiration. Okay, but rather that what uh, what was given through the prophet specifically in this case, the prophet Moses, okay, was to be studied. It was to be understood. It was to be looked after and reviewed and understood on a level that they could then impart it to others. So very important here, the nature of a teacher versus the nature of a prophet. Uh, He was not speaking under inspiration. If you go to Nehemiah chapter 8, we read uh, how from morning until midday they read from the law. And then other priests, Levites, would stand up and it says in Nehemiah 8, 7, the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book of the law and the law of God. Uh, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So there were a lot of words said so that understanding could be imparted to these people. There was at this time a language barrier as well because uh, they had been off in Babylon for 70 years. Guess what? Not too many of them spoke Hebrew. (laughs) They spoke Aramaic, kind of a related language. There's a little bit of overlap, but not a one for one. There would have been some need to fill in the gaps and to uh, help translate this, help the understanding uh, as it was being read to them. But note that they were, you know, giving them the sense so that they understood the reading. That is the goal of a teacher is so that you understand the scriptures. Well, as we think about this in the progression of Israel throughout time, go ahead and turn with me to the last prophet of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. So we're going way forward now. We want to go right before the book of Matthew. We're looking at Malachi. And here we are roughly 400 years. We call it the 400 years of silence between the last prophet, Malachi, and the coming of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist specifically would have been the first prophet to burst back onto the scene. But Malachi chapter 2, note the spiritual condition of Israel not too long after the revival under Ezra. Malachi chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. They were right back where they were before. They were already starting to veer off. The Levites, the the priests, right? The covenant of Levi says here, he's referring to that commission of Aaron to do this very thing, to teach and preserve knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of God's law. But instead, he, uh, the priests were causing the people to stumble through their instruction. 
Now, what is very interesting is when you put the reality of Ezra the scribe together with what we find in the New Testament when Jesus Christ shows up, this is what we find is that the priests had pretty much abdicated their role as scribes, as experts in the law. We find that they are the party of the Sadducees. Okay? And it, when you look at the scribes and how that term is used in the Gospels, it's really not associated with the Sadducees. It's usually scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees. So the, the, uh, the descendants of Aaron had pretty much abdicated their role as being experts in the law. And we're going to find out in a moment why. It's because their theology was really, really bad. <laughs> okay. They had drifted far from the law. But at the same time, now those scribes, there was the, this, this uh, culture now within Israel of an expert in the law. And it was dominated primarily by the Pharisees. Okay, so just keep that in mind as we look now into the New Testament. Uh, in Acts chapter, uh, I'm just going to read this for you because we're not going to go to the book of Acts. But in Acts chapter 23, we have a very important statement in understanding the theology of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Uh, Acts 23, 8 says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Very interesting here. What were the Sadducees, the descendants of Aaron at this time, characterized by? Subtraction, right? There's no resurrection. There is no, uh, there's no resurrection. There's no angels. There's no spirit. What were they doing? They're reading the law of God and they're saying those aren't real. Boy, it sounds kind of like liberal Protestantism today, right? Just people who look at the Bible and say, well, that's not real. That's just kind of the uh, fictitious, you know, superstitions of an ancient people speculating about God. They're very philosophical. That's what was represented here in the Sadducees now. Far from really being experts in the law, they didn't take any of it really seriously. So these priests, these descendants of Aaron, were not really the, the people that, that, that the nation looked to anymore. They turned rather to the Pharisees. And those scribes and Pharisees, just as the Sadducees were the ones who subtracted from God's word, now these scribes and Pharisees were those who were really characterized by adding. Okay? They ended up subtracting too, but the way they got to that subtraction was by adding. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Again, by this time, the scribes and the Pharisees were virtually synonymous. Not all Pharisees were scribes, but all scribes, it would seem, were Pharisees. Uh, Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark. Did I say Matthew? I meant Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So Mark chapter 7. Note what is said concerning these individuals. Mark chapter 7. Oh, picking it up in, uh, it gives a description there of all the different things that they do, washing their hands. The question is posed, why do your disciples not wash their hands, Jesus? Look at verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So here they are, all these different things that weren't prescribed in the law. Here they are doing them. They're making them a priority to the point where they're policing everybody else. Jesus, you know, why are your disciples not doing this? And note what it says here. Look at uh, verse 6. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah the prophet, prophet uh, Isaiah prophesy of you, uh, you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They were the ones adding. And if you 
add, it's not going to be too long before too long you're going to be subtracting. Look at verse 8. Neglecting the commandment of God, uh, you hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. That's a very interesting thing. And, and, and when you stop and really ponder that, how can something so noble as what Ezra set out to do be, you know, I want to I study the word of God. I want to know the word of God. I want to practice the word of God. How could it morph and distort and turn into this? Something so noble, right? That's the root was Ezra. But you see that even in that endeavor, you can step off. This isn't what characterized Israel as a whole in their past. But by the time Christ shows up, that's exactly what characterizes it. This is no less of a distortion as what they had experienced previously, prior to going into captivity. It's just adding as opposed to subtracting, right? They got there a little different route, but they ended up, uh, ancient Israel went the route of subtracting and then adding, and now we see a group of people who are adding and then subtracting, but they end up doing the same thing. Well, interestingly enough, um, when we see the New Testament, that Jesus' words, some of the most severest rebukes that we see in the New Testament is for these people. It's for those who add to God's word. Uh, Look at Matthew chapter 23. I guess you got to go back for this. Matthew chapter 23, Matthew, Mark. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. (laughs) Isn't that just an interesting picture? Uh, You know, I think about this oftentimes, and and what he's saying here, I think, is what I would call an error of emphasis. So there are those things that, you know, it's all the word of God, right? And yet there are some more fundamental truths Kind of like today, how we're talking about, okay, do not add to his word, do not take away. I mean, there's kind of like those foundational realities, right? Here they are counting out seeds, really tiny seeds, by the way, mint, dill, cumin, okay? They're counting out these little seeds, but neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness? How does that make sense? This is tantamount to straining out a gnat, which was unclean, by the way. They were not to uh, eat a gnat. If you ate a gnat, you were unclean. A camel. A camel was also unclean. You were not supposed to eat camels. But here they are filtering out gnats from their drinks, right? The little gnat who flies into your drink and he dies in there and then you drink it and you've just ingested a gnat. You're unclean. So they would actually strain out whatever they were drinking prior to drinking it to make sure that they didn't consume a gnat. And he says, look at this. You strain out gnats, but you're choking down a camel. Right? I mean, what a picture. That is the kind of hypocrisy that had come to characterize the descendants of Ezra. Well, what is the warning that we find in the New Testament? And if you stop and think about it, turn back to Matthew chapter 16. When you stop and think about this, why are we told so much about these people in Scripture? I mean, there is a large amount of space, a tremendous amount of interaction that goes on with uh, with the Pharisees. And I think we see why when we get to chapter 16 of Matthew, look at verse five, Matthew 16, five, the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, jump down to verse 12. Then they understood. And he has to go through this long thing explaining to them what exactly he's talking about. Verse 12. They, then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread. Leaven, by the way, is what makes bread rise, right? The yeast. But of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. See, Jesus Christ was about to depart from this world and he was going to task his disciples, who would then become the apostles, to establish his church. And just like anything starting out in its infancy, boy, what would the devil love to do? He'd like just to add something in there, right? Maybe he'd like to take something away. The earlier you get it out, the earlier you get it in, the less likely it is to go away. And so he warns them. That this very reality can characterize his church. He warns them, and it's important to note here when you think about leaven. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You know, what corrupted the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Who were they corrupted by? They were corrupted from within. See, we still have the flesh and there's still this tendency to read the word of God and to ignore some things and to add other things. Right. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who, who should they have been warned against? Well, see, he's really not necessarily warning, you know, watch out for the Sadducee when he comes in or the Pharisee when he comes in, which is a very re real reality. Right. It can come that way, but it can come from within as well. And we need to be warned concerning that. It's uh, interesting to note when we get to Philippians chapter 3 that Paul refers to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee. But then he goes on to say, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He had to leave his Pharisaism behind to follow Jesus Christ. These are incompatible realities. And when you study and read about what they were about and how they added to God's word, you find out just how serious it is. Uh, just a few more verses here. I know we're running short on time. I told you this was going to be unwieldy. But it is interesting, the exhortations that we find in the New Testament, not to be many teachers for we will incur a stricter judgment. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of God. Again, the word is a tightrope, and it needs to be accurately handled. It needs to be just what God intended it to be. And if you step off to the left, you're... Two stories down. You step off to the right, you're two stories down. I'll never forget, and this was a very deciding moment in my life as a Christian. Uh, it, was, it was in a college professor or a college class over here at Grace, and we were just discussing some various uh, topics in Christianity. I can't re even remember what the class was, but I remember who said it, and I remember the situation, or you know, the, uh, what was said. And <laughs> someone said, well, you know, we're trying to cut the knot between a, a very difficult, challenging situation in, in the church today. You know, where people, lots of different opinions uh, came to bear and so forth. And, and, the, uh, and the individual, one of the students said, well, hey, if you have to err, wouldn't it be better to err on the side, conservative side? And, uh, and, you know, I didn't really have an answer for that. And I was like, well, yeah, that sounds good. And then the professor said, yeah, it's better not to err. You know, that's where we need to be at. It's better not to err. Uh, I don't want to ever get the mindset, well, you know, if I had to pick one, I don't want to pick either. I want to pick the straight line. I want to pick exactly what he says. Isaiah 66, 1 says this, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble 
and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. You know, God doesn't need an editor. (laughs) He doesn't need an editor. That doesn't sound like a God who needs an editor. I think he said what he meant and he meant what he said. He knows what he meant to say. And he communicated in such a way that we could understand it. It doesn't mean that we don't have to study. It doesn't mean that, you know, there isn't going to be gaps in understanding at time. And the best of intentions are uh, sometimes not enough. But the fact of the matter is, is that the goal is not to tamper with his word. You know, we all fall short of this book. And, and one of the greatest challenges is to get up here. And, and uh, I don't envy Davy doing this week in, week out. You get up here and you read this book, you study this book, and you go to impart it to others. And then it's just like, you know, you don't really feel qualified, right? Because it condemns you just as much as, you know, anybody. So, you know, we're always going to fall short of this book. And that's the way it should be. This book, um, you know, should always sit in judgment of me. But one thing I want to make sure of is I'm never sitting in judgment of it. I don't get to determine what it says. I just have to be faithful in relating it. Uh, This is what every true teacher is striving to do. Um, I don't want to sit in judgment of the book. I don't get to determine, you know, what it is. It's not my prerogative. That is one of those foundational realities is that God... To whom shall he look? The one who's humble, right? Who lowers himself below the Lord, who's contrite, who's fearful, and trembles at his word and would not want to tamper with it in the slightest.